is it a story you knew entirely before you began the book, or did you research and find out wonderfully scandalous details you didn't know before? Well, I was aware of um, various anecdotes and short stories, and um, I thought to myself, if someone doesn't record them, they will disappear forever, or they could disappear. And we also had um, these archives, uh, which I had to deal with. So I made up my mind to read through all the archives, which were a lot of documents and letters, and just in case there were um, treasures, and there were, which are in the book. And uh, <laughs> you, have, you have to read the book to find them. You do. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, in the partners' minutes, um, I have a. Um, a Quaker ancestry, so you, it's quite find, difficult to find anything gossipy or at all unkind. <laughs> and quite often, um, I would read in the partner's minutes, um, there's more on this subject which cannot be recorded. <laughs> uh, but that's true of my book too, because some of the stories I came across, I thought, I can't put that in the book, I'll be sued for slander or something. Oh. <laughs> well, if you, if you would like to sit to read, you can, or you can... Um, you can okay, I'll try sitting. We, we will enjoy it. Okay. Um, so, uh, I've got to rattle through this because I only have a, a short um, uh, time span. But this is a story about um, privateering. And uh, I'm going to open with a quote from the Percy anecdotes in which it was first recorded. During the war with France in 1780, Mr. Fox, a merchant of Falmouth, had a share in a ship which the other owners determined to fit out as a letter of mark very much against the wishes of Mr. Fox, who was a Quaker. The ship had the good fortune to take two French merchantmen, and the share of the prize money which fell to Mr. Fox was £1,500. At the close of the war, Mr. Fox sent his son, who was soon afterwards elected physician to the Bristol Infirmary, to Paris with the £1,500, which he faithfully refunded to the owners of the vessels captured. The young gentleman, to discover the owners, was obliged to advertise for them in the Paris papers. In consequence of this advertisement, he received a letter from a small village near Nîmes, in the province of Languedoc, acquainting him that a society of Quakers was established in that remote part of France, consisting of about 100 families. That they were so much struck with this rare instance of generosity in one of their sect that they were desirous to open a correspondence with him in England, which immediately commenced. The Mr. Fox in question was Joseph Fox, brother to George Croker Fox, who was the founder of the ship agency in Falmouth. Joseph was a surgeon in the town, and because, as his son so neatly puts it, in country situations the practice of this art furnishes but slender opportunity for much emolument. He was always forward to embrace any lawful means of advancing his circumstance. There's nothing wrong in that, and for many in Cornwall, the same truth still stands today. So, according to his pecuniary ability, he took small shares in mines, he held one or two with his brother in merchant vessels, and he was a part owner in a Lisbon packet for several years. He also had a quarter part in two luggers or cutters which were used to protect the revenue against smugglers along the Cornish coast. The trouble started in 1778, when during the War of American Independence, France declared war in support of the colonists. 
and English revenue cutters armed for privateering proved very effective in capturing prizes from the French. Interestingly, in a deed dated the 30th September in the same year, George Croker Fox was appointed agent at Penryn for taking care of all such prisoners of war at that place. And going back to the 1750s, there are, equally, letters which show concern for English prisoners of war in France. Not surprisingly, Joseph, being a Quaker, remonstrated against withdrawing the vessels from a lucrative and lawful occupation to employ them in one which was hazardous, expensive and dangerous, but above all so contrary to his religious opinions. He even suggested that his non-Quaker fellow shareholders should buy him out. But this was rejected, and the plea of the minority being bound by the will of the majority compelled him to submit to all the risk without the pleasing anticipations which others less scrupulous do not fail to allow themselves. At this stage, we should pause and observe two points. The first is the foolishness of embarking on any joint venture with partners who do not share your own religious convictions, or at any rate, a higher code of ethics. And this was not the first or last time that members of the family had fallen into this trap. The Quaker attitude to see good in all mankind can bring it with it the penalties of naivety. The second is the dangers of compromise. Historically, Quakers abhorred voting. It resulted in a majority and necessarily a minority, in their opinion, both equally dangerous and tantamount to a compromise. This is ironical. There are many instances where it has been preferable to compromise than go to war. But even then, as we have witnessed with this country's politics, a compromise is not a wholly happy solution. Naturally, after ample success had attended this undertaking, the other shareholders most unrighteously declared that in the light of his objections, he should forfeit his rewards from the venture. Again, very significantly, Joseph protested arguing that having now become possessed of a property of another, he then thereby became a trustee to the original proprietors to whom he felt restitution should be made. Imagine the weight on his conscience. First, he jumped into bed with a, clearly a bunch of scoundrels. Secondly, the character of the joint venture turned into one which was frowned upon by the Society of Friends. And thirdly, he took the much more difficult decision to see that right should come of wrong, and not for himself. He was even offered a very handsome annuity, but for a scattered collection of unknown Frenchmen all living the other side of the English Channel. Not unsurprisingly, he said nothing of this to his wife or family, nor would a great many husbands on even lesser issues. But in 1784, he wrote to his son Edward Longfox, who was finishing his medical studies in Edinburgh, and asked him not to settle immediately as a physician, but to go on his behalf to transact some business in Paris, in other words, the restitution of between 1,200 and 1,300 pounds. I wish thee to go to Paris and Holland to transact some business for me, which would afford thee much pleasure and more to others who will cheerfully allow the expense of thy journey. The underlying message here is that there was no one else he could trust be very circumspect and cautious in thy answers to the claimants, he advised his son. It also shows a rare degree of humility and closeness that he should eventually place his confidence in a member of his family. 
the restitution of funds was easier said than done. And finally, in February 1785, an advertisement had to be placed in the Gazette de France. In spite of his father's death at about this time, Edward plodded on with his mission, touchingly because of the foresight of the letter of instruction. He finally discharged his obligations in 1817 by establishing a fund for the relief of aged and distressed merchant seamen. The whole mission demonstrates a refreshing measure of paternal authority being exercised in the life of a 23-year-old. And in time, Edward's acceptance of the instruction shows how in turn he honoured his parents' requests. It undeniably was going to give Edward and his wife the opportunity to travel, but more importantly, it would give greater abundance of pleasure to others. We are not on this planet just to please ourselves. It also suggests that Edward might have been expected to receive remuneration from some of the recipients, but it must have been hard trying to explain that this was the nature of his, not, of his job and not just to his believing family. This well-known story and my less than amateur exegesis are included because it is an illustration of being on the brink of the world. What looked like a fair opportunity in worldly terms, Quakers had a keen eye of making money, turned out in terms of Quaker ethics to be a non-starter. Yet again, this non-conformist family was thrown up against the brink. Contrary to current practices, there was simply no way in which they wished to lick the world, lick in the sense of conquer, lick in the sense of punish, and although they had high values of stewardship, lick in the sense of hedonistically squeezing out every job drop of enjoyment. Being on the brink was for a Christian the correct place to be, as is indicated in the following extract from a letter of appreciation written to Edward by the Quakers of Nimes, uh, dated 1st of April 1785. The testimony which thou hast borne of, to France of the inviolable attachment to the two principles of Christ and of thy humane and pacific disposition, which has inclined thee to do good to thine enemies, has caused the hearts of the brethren to leap for joy, and so on for four pages of full scap. <laughs> Years later, Alfred Fox caused, had caused to refer to this famous story as recorded by his son George. Our father was always delighted to tell us of the great honour and trust conferred on him after the peace in 1815, when he chaperoned six young ladies through Belgium to Paris and home. They were posted with four horses throughout, visited the field of Waterloo with the greatest interest. His charges spent so freely in buying souvenirs that when they reached Paris, he found he had not money enough to bring them home. He went to a Paris banker, one of Fox & Co's correspondents, and told the banker exactly how he was situated. The banker was extremely polite, but said they had a rule which was never broken and which was never to advance money without personal identification. Our father said that, uh, in, that, said in that case, they must wait in Paris until he could get the money from Falmouth. He then had a very pleasant talk with the banker and casually mentioned that one of the Fox family who owned a share in a vessel that made prizes of French vessels going to war had after the peace gone to France to distribute his share of the prize money amongst the French owners of the vessels and the vessel's captains. The banker said, that is sufficient introducing. You shall, I know all about it, you shall have the money.
his mouth or something. <laughs> <laughs>